0: Hello and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. We are in the book of 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter. This is a uh, major event in biblical history. We're looking at the life of David. And uh, David has been extremely blessed and favored by God. Despite Saul's desire to kill him and to destroy him. In the end, Saul is uh, defeated by the Philistines. David is lifted up. He unites the nation together and uh, conquers Jerusalem. It's now the city of David. It's the national uh, center for the nation. Uh, All is well. Everywhere he goes, he's succeeding in in battle against his enemies. Uh, Huge amounts of wealth are being confiscated from his enemies and brought into the kingdom. And then in chapter 11, we read about the darkest time in David's life when despite his incredible heart for God, he makes a horrible mistake. He, instead of being out to war, he sets back, uh, chills out. He starts lusting after a woman that he sees from his rooftop, named Bathsheba. She was quite the babe, apparently. And uh, he sets out to seduce her, has sex with her, gets her pregnant, and freaks that she's pregnant. So her husband, who's out on the battlefield, he calls her, ba- calls him back, tries to get him to go on back into. Uh, his house so by having sex with his wife then he would think it's his kid and then he covers his sin well Uriah is a righteous man and he refuses to go and sleep with his wife because he refuses to be comforted while his brothers are out there fighting in battle and David tries to get him drunk and he still won't do it so eventually David sends him back and goes to the lowest point of his life where um, he uh encourages or tells Joab the leader of the army to set it up so that it kills Uriah in battle and so he sends them into a part of a battle that they shouldn't have been in and uh, virtually guaranteeing that everybody who was on that group died so if you think about it, not only was Uriah killed but many men were killed all to cover David's sin now David knew the word of God we're talking the big ten here thou shalt not commit adultery thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not kill. I mean, he's got three of these, boom, boom, boom. And uh, so anyway, Joab obeys David. Uh, Joab was a little bit of a rascal anyway, but uh, <clears throat> yeah, we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. But So Joab goes along with this and uh, sends him in, and Uriah gets killed. So he sends a messenger out to tell David what had happened. So we'll pick it up in verse 22. The messenger set out, and when he arrived he told David everything that Joab had sent him to say the messenger said to David the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate when the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall and some of the king's men died and Joab had warned him that the king might get mad uh, for doing such a poor strategic move of getting that close into the wall where the archers were and he quickly says to David, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So he wanted to pass that word. We had this bad, a whole bunch of guys died, but Uriah died. And as soon as he said, David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. So David, instead of getting angry, is calm now. In essence, he's happy. His problem, if you will, is solved. Uriah is dead. He's not going to have this problem with his pregnant wife. Uh, he can't testify against her as far as anybody else in the city knows. He had had sex with her when he was back in town. Uh, so anyway, he says, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. In other words, stuff happens is what he says. Don't worry, stuff happens. Uh, press the attack against the city, destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. No, just keep going, you can get the city and wipe them out. Well, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. <clears throat> and, uh, and I'm sure she did. I, you know, um, adultery is a, a strange thing. You know, weird emotions, making bad decisions. I'm sh- it wouldn't surprise me at all if she really did love her husband, but just caught up, got caught up in a very bad decision. The guilt had to be overwhelming to her, as you can well imagine. And now he's dead. I don't know if she knew what David had done. He might have told her. I mean, she would have just added to the guilt. I mean, these guys were up to their eyeballs on this. Anyway, after her time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Do you think? All right, so now we're at chapter 12. So chapter 11 is David's great sin against God. The adultery, the lying, the murder. Well, chapter 12, verse 1 now. The Lord sent Nathan. Who's Nathan? Remember we read about Nathan uh, a little while ago. Nathan is now the major prophet in the land. It was Samuel. Samuel has died. We haven't heard about any changes now until they mention Nathan. Nathan the prophet. So the Lord sends Nathan, this prophet, to David. And when he came to him, he said, He gave him a parable. He told him a story. David didn't know he was making it up. He thought it was a true story. But uh, Nathan basically sets David up for a major rebuke. He tells David, he says, you know, there were two men in a certain town. One was rich and the other one was poor. The analogy, of course, being David and humble Uriah. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. Again, the analogy. David had all these women, the concubines, uh, anything he wanted, all the wealth. Uh, Uriah just had his wife Bathsheba. Well, he says he raised it. He grew up with him and his children. He shared his food and drank. He's he's telling this parable here. Uh, he loved this lamb, he shared his food with it, he drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. As, it was like a daughter to him. He loved this little lamb. David was listening to the story of this guy. Wow, this guy just he had so little but yet he loved this lamb and it was a family pet, everybody loved the lamb. Now a traveler came to the rich man but the rich man refrained from taking one of his old sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. So it was tradition When someone would come in as a host, you would take one of your lambs and you would butcher it and offer meat to it. Well, this rich man didn't want to offer up any of his lambs for this traveler. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. So he's telling him this real sob story here about this poor guy. And this rich guy went and takes this guy's only lamb, this one little lamb that he loved so dearly, and he cuts it up and consumes it. For this friend. Well David. Burned with anger. Against the man. And and said to Nathan. I mean David thought this was a true story. David is furious. And he says as surely as the Lord lives. This man who did this. Deserves to die. And he must pay for that lamb four times over. Because he did such a thing and had no pity. So David's intent was to. uh, Take. Several of the other guys lambs. Give it back to that family and kill this guy. Uh, for what a horrible thing uh, that he had done he said who is this guy and nathan said to david you are that guy wow you are the man you're the one who did this terrible thing now that's some cojones for nathan the prophet you got to be careful around these kings because they can kill you when you rebuke them But uh, under the anointing of God, he pointed out, you are the guy who's guilty of sin. And then he starts to prophesy to him. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. So here's how much God was blessing. I've given you everything. If this was too little, everything I've given you, I'd have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite To be your own. So he starts pronouncing judgment on David. Number one, the sword will never depart from your house. You're going to have strife and conflict in your home. And uh, we will see that in fact, that is what comes to pass. And he goes on. He's not done. He says, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. And we're going to read about the calamity that falls on David as a result of this act. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives, uh, though it actually, as we hear later, is, are, is concubines, but it's, it's, it's like a wife. It's just they didn't have the legal status. It's kind of a You had your wives and your concubines. They were all basically your wives. They all gave you children. <clears throat> I'm, going to get, I'm going to take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. He's going to have sex with these women in broad daylight. Of your wives. Someone close to you. And you. What you did in secret. What you did. You hid this whole thing in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before Israel. This is the result. This humiliation. Is going to be done in front of everybody. What. The same, very same thing that you did in. Uh, uh, private. Now this is. This is some serious stuff. Here. That. That. Uh, Is going to happen to David. Uh, Now what's really of key interest here. Is what happens in the next verse. You remember when Saul. God had told Saul. Go and kill this uh, army of guys. And don't leave anything alive. And just wipe everything out. Don't bring anything back. Well Saul didn't obey God. He killed most of what he was supposed to but he kept all the plunder and all the lambs and the cattle and stuff and he brought him back and when God confronted Saul about his sin of rebellion Saul's response was to give excuses well I did this because you know I did what you said I mean I, I won I killed this guy but I, I brought all this this these animals back so we could worship you we could sacrifice and offer sacrifices to the Lord Uh, So, uh, and he had his rationale, and people, by the way, are very good at this. They know what they do is wrong, but they justify what they do and and put it into context of their own unique little situations. Um, I I hear this a lot, even in our church, you know. I mean, we're pretty clear about doing things righteously in this church we don't believe we're legalistic uh but we like to speak god's truth we're not afraid to speak god's truth here and one of god's truths is thou shalt not commit adultery you're not supposed to have sex with someone who's not your husband or not your wife okay sex outside of marriage is wrong we're pretty clear about that now legalism what legalism does is it takes god's command and then adds to it you know thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not have sex legalism would therefore be if we said therefore no guy can hug a woman in the church or or no man should shake a woman's hand or men should never talk to women or all the men will sit on this side of the church and all the women will sit on that side of the church see that's legalism because we're adding to God's laws or rules trying to help poor God out because apparently God didn't realize he needed this help And we create legalism. It's like, uh, you know, alcohol, which we talk about from time to time. The Bible's very clear. You are not supposed to get inebriated and drunk and under the influence of alcohol. It does not, however, say you cannot drink. Now, there's a whole bunch of evangelical Christians who become legalistic about it. So because you should not take alcohol, you should never drink anything okay that's legalism and then the next step was well you can't even go into a restaurant where they serve alcohol I was raised a lot of you guys were raised in churches like this we grew up you couldn't even go to like a uh, you know I don't know Applebee's or something because they happen to serve alcohol I mean they were that strict and and they kept just adding to it and that's where it becomes legalistic Uh, and it's not very helpful the analogy would be like if there was a rule for example with your kids don't play in the traffic don't play in the street so that's the rule you're not supposed to play in the street well, legalism would say, well, therefore they should not play in the front yard. Because if they play in the front yard, they'll be tempted to go in the street. And then there's all in their backyard. And then legalism comes and says, well, you know, you shouldn't play in the yard at all. You should stay in the house. Because if you're not in the yard, you can't wind up in the street. And then legalism would say, and you should, we need to close the curtain so you can't see outside. Because if you see outside, you'll be tempted to go outside and therefore have a chance of getting in the street. And what we really need to do is make sure the kids only play in the basement. Therefore, they won't be tempted to be upstairs where they might look outside, be tempted to go in the yard and then wind up in the street. That's legalism. Many churches have been guilty of legalism, adding all kinds of rules on when uh, God never said that. He says His basic law, okay? So we're, while we're not legalistic about uh, these things, we're not, on the other hand, just so permissive that we never talk about the truth. And I think you know that we've always been honest with you, and we're not afraid at Celebration Church to say, hey, this is right and this is wrong. This is what God says. So, back to my analogy you shouldn't have sex with someone outside of marriage. Well, it's amazing how many people in Celebration Church that come to me and others and say, well, I do this, but it's because we love each other or we're already married in the eyes of God or we have a real special connection or da da da. See what they don't understand is uh, truth is truth. Okay? It's just truth. It's not truth after it's gone through your filter of feelings or your circumstances. God did not say thou shalt not commit adultery ordinarily. Thou shalt not say thou shalt not Uh, kill somebody under most circumstances okay Uh, he was very clear about the the basic laws of morality sadly people come along David could have done this he could have said well look at you know my guys were out at battle you know I was was bored you know she was lonely her husband was out on the front line we didn't mean for it to happen you know but I can just imagine if if David and Bathsheba went to church nowadays and I was talking to him I'm sure that's what I'd hear you know, we didn't mean it, you know, da 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 So therefore, it's, it's really not wrong. We're just waiting for, for when God can bring us together. No, <clears throat> no, 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 no. See, now, that's what Saul did. When God confronted Saul with his sin, he makes all the excuses. Well, you know, I was thinking this, and, and I could do that and stuff. And it really ticked God off. And as a result, God rejected Saul as king. So now we have David sinning. The prophet now comes to David, confronts him with his sin. Now, how does David react? Is he going to react like Saul and come up with the excuses? Well, you know, I I couldn't help it or, you know, it was an accident. We we really love you. I know it's wrong, but, 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 and all this nonsense. Or is he going to own his actions? And we read in verse 13, David's response to Nathan's rebuke in his face. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is what makes David different than Saul. One could argue very easily that David's sin was by far and away larger than Saul's sin. Saul's sin was, God said, go to battle, kill everything, don't bring anything back. Well, there's nothing in the Ten Commandments about that. There's no law anywhere about that. I mean, it's just about, the only thing you can do is just obey the Lord. When God tells you to do something, do it. I mean, David's sin is flagrant. It's lust. It's adultery. It's lying. It's drunkenness. He gets the guy drunk. He he kills the man. This is, again, if Saul's sin is here, David's sin is here. Why doesn't God reject David now when he rejected Saul? Because when Saul was confronted with his sin, he gave excuses. Blah, 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 blah. And God rejected him. When David's sin, even though much greater than Saul, was confronted, he owned it. He said, You're right. You're right. What, What I have done is wrong. He offers no excuse, no justification. No rationalization. He just says, wow, you're right, I'm wrong. And he repents before the Lord and before Nathan. And uh, Nathan replies, he says, well, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this, you have made enemies of the Lord show utter... uh, but by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. Your son born to you will die. So Nathan basically pardons him because he repents. Again, totally different than the when Saul reacted. Excuse blah, 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 blah. Whereas David, I repent. He wants to get right with God. You're right. Everything I've done is wrong. God forgives him. But Nathan says, as a result of your sin, your son will die. Um, now, What's real interesting about this is this, you would get the sense, at least I get get the sense when I read this, that God says, you know, your house is going to be taken by the sword, someone close to you uh, will bring calamity, they'll have sex with your wives in broad daylight, For all this humiliation, there's a result, and then David repents and he says, well, I forgive you, but your son will die. I get the sense that he's been forgiven, therefore all that previous stuff's not going to happen either. Uh, we will find that, in fact, it does. Now, it's kind of an interesting theological question. Why? Why is this happening? Why, if God has forgiven him, why not remove the curse or the punishment of that sin? And uh, there's, there's several ways of looking at this. Well, we'll try and boil it down to just very simply this. Um, there's consequences for sin. God can forgive you, but there's still consequences as a result of the sin. Now, his consequences were pretty severe, to say the least. Um, My guess is if you fail morally or sexually or something, you're not going to have dead babies and, you know, travesty and violence and bloodshed in your home and, you know, public sexual humiliation. But why did David? You have to understand, Jesus taught us this principle. To whom much is given, much shall be required. Uh, The more God blesses you, the more favor you have for God. And if you treat that with great contempt, the greater the consequences are going to be as a result of that. It's it's just the way that it is. Um, it's, It's one of the reasons why James said, "You know, I know a lot of you guys out there, you love God, you'd love to be in the ministry, you'd love to be able to preach and encourage people. He warned them, he said, you need to know. Those who do that are going to have a higher standard than those who do not do that. Again, to whom much is given, much shall be required. It's different if I make a mistake like that than if someone in the congregation, particularly someone young in the Lord who doesn't even know the Bible very well and slips and makes that mistake. And we need to treat it accordingly. You know, it it is much more serious if the pastor... it's adultery then if someone has sex with his boyfriend her her boyfriend when uh you know uh she's still growing in her faith and stuff like that neither one of them are right okay they're both wrong and neither one needs any excuses and you shouldn't have any excuses you need to stop you need to stop and start doing the right thing but the consequences are going to be different clearly in my case i would most likely lose my ministry and uh, it would be quite disastrous pray to god i never go down uh such a road but uh so anyway, so here's David. I mean, God talks to the man. David comes to God and he prays before he goes to battle. And God speaks to him. And I'm assuming it's not some still small voice like we kind of feel God might lead us one way or the other. I'm pretty sure when God said, blah, 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 blah. He said, blah, 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 blah. He heard God literally talking to him. God gave him favor and miracles in his life. And lifted him up and, and made him the most powerful man in the known world at this time. You bet your sweet bippy, whatever that means, that when he sinned, there are some heavy consequences. So there's consequences for sin. God will freely forgive you, but oftentimes there are residual effects of our sin that we have to deal with. Uh, Like some of the guys who uh, on occasion come from the uh, correctional facilities to church. They worship with us. They love God. Great guys. But after the service, they go back to jail. Why? Has God not forgiven them? Of course he's forgiven them. But there are still consequences for those sins. And David has some pretty severe consequences. Again, when you look at it, you go, wow, is that going to happen to me? Because I've messed up or failed. Not very likely unless you happen to be the most powerful man in the world and God speaks to you in audible voices and then you do this. Chances are, yeah, you're going to be in serious big trouble. So you always got to put it kind of in context here. But the lesson, none, nonetheless, is the same: that uh, there will be consequences. You know, uh, people who do the wrong things. You know, you might end up in divorce. You know, well, I said I was sorry. I didn't mean to commit adultery. You know, it was a mistake. Okay, God forgives you, but your wife still might divorce you. You might uh, lose. You lose your kids. Uh, you might. I mean, you might lose your job. I mean, who knows what will happen? There's consequences for doing bad, uh, stupid things, breaking God's moral, clear moral laws will bring negative consequences. You could get a sexually transmitted disease. I mean, you know, you might get pregnant, like Bathsheba got pregnant. You know, will God forgive you? Yeah. Will you probably wind up raising a child by yourself for the rest of your life? Yeah, very likely. Why? Because these things have consequences. So that's the clarity here. That So God forgives him. He's right with God. But still now the judgment of those sins, even though he's been personally forgiven, the weight of that sin is going to now fall on him. And it's so sad because he was so blessed by God. Now we're going to be reading for some chapters now of how things just go so south for him. I mean, it's very, very heartbreaking. God never intended any of this. And he did this all for what? For what? A few moments of pleasure. I mean... Really, when you think about what we're doing sometimes, you know, to protect ourselves, we lie so we can save some embarrassment. Uh, For some temporary comfort, we might take something that doesn't belong to us. For some emotional rush, physical thrill, we'll have sex outside of marriage. You know, is it fun? Yeah, sure it's fun. I get it. But it's not that fun. It's not worth that. I mean, yeah, but it's not worth losing out with God. And and you need to understand that when you do these things and you don't repent of these things, and you keep doing these things, you are causing a wall between you and Jesus, a wall between you and God God will not bless you if you keep doing this. The good news is you can ask him to forgive you and you can repent and he'll make things right and start blessing you. I don't know about you, man. Life is hard enough as it is. I do not need to be walking around life with the judgment of God on me because I'm being an idiot and refusing to do the right thing in some moral area of my life. I don't know about you. But I want God's blessings. I want God's favor. I want it more than I want anything else that's wrong. I'm as tempted as the next guy. Why don't I give in that temptation? Because more than I want some pleasure from sin. I want God's blessings in my life. I want to serve God. I want to have fellowship with him. I want his favor in my life. Any possible benefit. From sex or drugs or alcohol or stealing or lying, whatever—it's—it's it's minuscule compared to the benefits of walking with God, man. You, some of you guys need to have this revelation, and the lights need to turn on in your head. You're—you're you're, you're selling out your birthright as uh, for, for for a pot of beans, as Esau did. You remember Esau? He was supposed to be the first son, and he was so hungry for uh, for for. A, Bowl of stool, lentil beans. He sells to his brother his birthright because he was so hungry. So instead of being the number one son now, he sells that away for, for, for beans. And then later it dawns on him, but it's too late and he cries and he tries to get it back, but it's too late. We're selling our birthright. We're selling this wonderful blessings and experience with God. It's not like you're giving up this great blessings for this great fun. You're giving up these great blessings for this little, tiny, momentary nothing. Dear God, you need—if you're struggling, man, you need to pray. God, open my eyes and let me see what I'm doing. Let me see what I'm doing, man. If you're—if you're a slave to sexual sin, if you're a slave to alcohol, if you're a slave to drugs, if you're a slave to—as a believer in Jesus Christ, you need the lights to go on in your head. To show you what you are doing. You are trading off so much for so little. If this revelation would get into your head. I believe it would set you free. I think somehow in your mind you think you're trading off even Stephen. Or maybe even worse. Maybe you think of God's blessings being this little thing. But ooh, the benefit of this buzz that you get is really high not realizing that you're eating worms you're eating a bowl of of nothing and trading off for great prosperity and blessings and favor and health and success in your life Whew. anyway verse 15 after nathan had gone home the lord struck the child that your wife had born to david and he became ill uh You know, I've seen these in movies and stuff like that. The way it always portrays it is she has the baby and it's a little tiny baby and then the baby dies. We don't know the time frame here. Um, If it was a baby, if it was, you know, how much time has passed, a year, two years, we don't know. You know, is it a little toddler at this point? Uh, We have no idea. All we know is that all of a sudden this child now becomes ill. And David pleads with God for the child. And he fasted and he went into his house and he spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up off the ground, but he refused. He wouldn't eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they thought, while well, the child was still living. We spoke to David, but he refused to listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. He could hurt himself or he could kill me. Remember, this is the guy, and I'm sure the word got out, don't give David bad news. <laughs> hey, you're the guy who comes and says, hey, I helped Saul kill himself. David turns around and kills you. I mean, this. so this, these guys are afraid of David. He's been on the ground for seven days, six days. He won't eat anything. He's crying. He's praying out to God. I don't want you tell him he's dead. I ain't gonna tell him you tell me I ain't gonna tell him these guys are free. I ain't telling him he's dead, man. You got you know, I'm freaking out. Well, David noticed the servants were whispering among themselves that you do it, you do it. And he realized the child was dead, he knew what was up. And he asked the question, Is the child dead? And they with fear turned to him and said, Yes, he is dead. And to their surprise, David got up from the ground went and washed, put on lotions, changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house and at his request they served him food and he ate. Now this is very bizarre to his men. Anyone who's been acting that depressed over this when the child died you would think he would completely go off the deep end when in fact he totally composes himself and he sits down to have something to eat. Well, the servants finally asked him. He said, "Why, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted, you wept, you, you, you cried out desperately to God in prayer. But now that the child is dead, you, you get up and eat. What are you doing? Why are you, you've got us all very confused." And he answered very simply. He says, "While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows?" the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. He knew he served a merciful God and he was reaching out to God saying please God have mercy on this child. But now that he's dead why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him. I'll see him someday. But he will not return now to me. And that was the end of that. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba who was overwhelmed with grief. You can imagine losing the child. Uh, The guilt of all of this stuff. They both had to know uh, not only what they had done had been so guilty, but because of what they did, this child died. Serious guilt, folks. I mean, this is heavy stuff. And uh, um, we read about it in the psalms Um, let's jump over to some psalms here let's take a look at Psalm 51 this is a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba this is the song he wrote after David got in his face and said you are the man you are the wicked man and this is his prayer now again notice the difference between this and Saul even though David's sin was worse Saul, justified, justified, excuses, excuses, blah, blah, blah. I'm not that bad of a guy, la, 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 la. It's different for us. You know, we can do it because we love each other. You know, all this other horse manure, excuses people come up with. David repents. And this is what he prays. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for i know my transgression my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you you only have i sinned and done what is evil in your sight no excuses here so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you give when you judge and that's a great statement here you, I sin against you so that you were proved right when you speak. You notice that when you come up with justifications for sin, I don't care if it's lying, cheating, stealing, killing, whatever it is, you know, having sex outside, of me, well, you know, we love each other, da-da-da. You are insulting God. What you're saying to God is, God, you're a liar. Because you said, don't do this. That this was wrong. Obviously, God, you didn't know how I felt about Bobby here. You know, it's a huge insult when you come up with these excuses. Well, it doesn't matter anymore. You're not, you know, I am older learn life, you know, you know, what else am I going to do? I have needs, you know, all this other kind of stuff. At some point, you're saying to God, God, your statement of don't do this is flawed. It is weak. It is failing. I am wiser than you, oh God, because I understand my circumstances. I'm telling you folks, when you do this, hear me, please. When you do this, you are being so insulting to God. And then you come to God and ask for his blessings and you wonder why you struggle. He's not going to bless you like this. David owns the sin. And he says, so that you are proved right when you speak. What you said is right about these things. And you'll be justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Again, admitting his filth and his sin. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let my bones, you have crushed, rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Wow. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt. Oh God, boy, did he have some on his hands? He was one blood splashed man. O God, the God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. His specific blood guilt in this situation, of course, was the killing of Uriah and all his own men in an attempt to kill Uriah. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Now check this out. Saul... In his disobedience to God, brings these animals and disobeys God and says, "But God, I'm going to offer these offerings to you. I'm going to pray." And God said, "Do I care? Do I take delight in burnt offerings and stuff? Even though they were required to do this, this didn't bring joy to God." He says, "What I I brings joy to me is when you do the right things." And he rebuked Saul severely. So David had learned this lesson. As, as Saul was offering that excuses, David specifically says to God. You do not delight in sacrifice. If you did I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Or I would offer them up to you. He learned this. In Saul's mistake. The true sacrifices of God. He says. Are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. God rather than me cutting open some bull or lamb before you in an offering. I cut open my heart before you. What you require is the sacrifice from within. Oh God you will not despise such an offering. In your good pleasure make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices. Whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. It's like. You can't just do certain things externally when your inside is a mess. And what he's saying is, help me get my insides right so that you can take... So this other stuff does mean something. It's not that they weren't supposed to offer the offerings. They were. But what God told Saul, is, what's more important is your heart, man. The same thing can happen in church. You can come to church if you're living in sin... You can come to church and you can sing, you can clap your hands, and you can praise God, you can give big money in the offerings, uh, you can be a greeter at the doors, you can help serve communion and stuff, and is all that good? Yeah, it's all great, but what really matters is not what you do on the outside. It's not what impresses me. We can all sit and look at you up here singing or playing or doing some great thing with the children or something. And we'll all think you're great, but God knows your heart. And if in secrecy of your heart, you're, you're living in sin and you're uh, being controlled by uh, deadly habits and stuff that, that are wrong and you know they're wrong. And you come and you do these things. I mean, what God would be saying to you is, hey, look, man, get it right in here. It's good that you do these things. God loves it when you serve. And if you don't serve in the church, you should find a place to serve. If you come to church all the time here you and know, all you ever do is sit on your butt, you need to, okay, come on, grow up at some point, get involved. But most important, no matter how skillful you are, you might be a great orator of the word of God. You might be a great teacher, a great organizer. I mean, whatever it is that you have that you offer up to God in your own time, that's great, but... The most important thing that you have to offer to God is a broken heart, a yielded, willing spirit to do what he wants you to do so that inside we are right with God. You can't do it on the outside thinking it'll make up for a hard heart that is willfully disobeying God. So in the words of David, you know, have a have the kind of heart, say, God, create in me the kind of heart that will serve you and help me to be right on the inside so that then i can serve you on the outside all right now uh, the next time i'll pick up at, at this point there's a couple other psalms that i want to uh read with you as we take a look at david's heart again it's a major difference between the way saul reacted when confronted with his sin and the way david reacted uh, and then we will go on and now we will see what happens in David's life. Even though God has forgiven him, the consequences of his sin are, are so severe and it's so heartbreaking. And we'll go through that uh, when we pick it up again next time. God
1: bless. Our ushers are coming tonight as we... Prepare to continue our worship and giving. And, you know, gen- generosity is really about the heart, isn't it? It begins there. That's what drives us, is our response to God because He is the first giver. Mm-hmm. Amen. Let's pray tonight, shall we? Father, thanks for what you're doing in our lives, how you provide, you meet our needs. But more so, Lord, you have called us out to bless a world in need. And, Lord, as we as, as we give out of the incredible abundance that you've put in our lives, Father, I pray that you would take it multiply it to meet every need of your heart for the kingdom of God, what you want to do in this region. Meet many souls. Bring them to you, Jesus, at every campus and churches all across this region that are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We appreciate it. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you as you give tonight.